we are digging into 1 Corinthians. I just get whatever God gives to me next. And so this is what we got um, here this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, um, I ask that you help us as we dig through this passage. Uh, we believe, as uh, 2 Timothy 3 tells us, that, uh, that all scripture, every verse, every passage, every chapter, uh, every book, um, God, is, it's profitable. Um, God, it's profitable and it's good. And God, you've given it to us for a reason. And so I pray, God, as we dig here, that you would help us to understand what, um, what's going on in the text. Help us to apply that to our lives and understand. Um, God, because we want to see Jesus. We want to worship him. We want to love him more um, so that, God, we can move out as a people uh, to, see, to see others come to know you. That's our major goal, God. That's our, that's our love. That's our passion. That's what we want to see. So help us, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I grew up in a town called Danville, Virginia. Anybody here? Anybody here from Virginia, by the way? Any, any fellow Virginia people? No, I'm the only one. Okay. Uh, Virginia. Grew up in Danville, Virginia. And um, both, my, uh, both my, my mom and my stepdad worked in, uh, worked in a factory called Owens Brockway Glass. Uh, there there they, made, they made all kinds of things. I mean, everything from, from beer bottles to Gerber baby food jars, right? Anything to do with glass is what they made. My mom worked as an inspector. That was her job to inspect every glass bottle to make sure it wasn't cracked before it went out. And my, my stepfather worked as an engineer uh, in what they called the hot end, okay? And it was called the hot end for a reason. Uh, the hot end was where they would heat um, a salt, uh, recycled glass, and other chemicals in a giant container uh, and heat it up to about 3,500 degrees. So he's working, that's why they call it the hot end, right? 3,500 degrees and in, until the mixture really started to resemble lava is what it started to look like. And then what would happen was, and I remember got, getting to visit as a kid and kind of getting to see how this whole, all this machinery works, uh, the machine would, would pump out in kind of rapid-fire succession, like what looked like fireballs to my young eyes, you know, just kind of shoot, 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 just shooting down, would land into a, a mold, solidify, cool, and voila, became, you know, a glass bottle or a Gerber baby food jar, right? That's what it became. It would pump out about 532 of these a minute. Okay, 532 bottles a minute. So it was pretty amazing for, for a kid to sit there and watch that happen. And yet that machine, with all of its complexities, um, it doesn't hold a candle to, honestly, the complexity that is our own heart, right? Um, well, that machine turned out bottles. Our hearts turn out what the Bible calls idols, which may, seem, may be a foreign term to you, but I'm going to hopefully ex explain that to you. Uh, John Calvin was a reformer back in the 1500s, uh, started the Reformation, what is now called the Protestant Church is what we're a part of today here at Parkside. And uh, he said this, he said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing them. We're an expert. We just, we pump them out, right? We, in anything, I mean, we're, we're very creative, by the way, with our idols, too. We're creative idol makers. Making anything and everything can be made into an idol. Why is that? That's because, this is very important for you to understand, especially if you don't know Christ this morning, that we are all, whether you attend church often or not, we're all religious, all right? God has made us uh, in such a way that our hearts crave significance, weightiness, value. We, we want something to build our life on, and, and that was ultimately made to be, right, built on God himself. Our souls were meant to find that satisfaction, that identity in God, in that relationship towards God through Christ. That's what we were made for. But instead of, right, doing that, we turn around and walk away, and we try to find it somewhere else, right? Um, Isaiah 43, 7 
says, uh, God speaking, says, whom I created, speaking of us, for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made you for him. Think about that for a second. God made you. Okay, you. Not just the person in front of you, behind you, beside you, right? Made you for himself. Not to do things for him, but for himself, right? For a relationship. Uh, Augustine, way back in the fourth century, said this, you have made us, speaking of God, for yourself. And this is really intuitive. He says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's what we are. We're, we're restless. We're wandering around this world trying to find that rest, trying to find that place, trying to find that foundation. Um, and, and instead, we turn around and walk away. And that's really what the Bible uh, calls idolatry. It's what idolatry is. Okay? Let me give you, there's a word picture, a beautiful, really good word picture. It's not quite beautiful, actually. It's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty bad word picture, but it's a um, it says this, Jeremiah 2, verse 13, this is God speaking. He says this, my people have committed two evils. Okay, two evils, what are those? They have forsaken me, he says, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out, carved out cisterns, or like, kind of like bowls for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is that imagery? What is he talking about? It's like, it's like we're wandering the desert of this world in search for water. And we abandon, we find, we find in the middle of the desert, we're about to die of thirst, we find a fountain, right? I mean, that'd be crazy, wouldn't it? I mean, a fountain bubbling up in the middle of the desert, we find it. And it's Jesus, right? The fountain of living water. And instead of, we look at that and we go, I'm sure it's probably pretty good, but I bet you there's a better fountain somewhere else. It sounds foolish, right? That's why he calls it evil, or, and we'll talk about it in a minute, like, sin kind of makes you stupid. I mean, it's just like, it's a fountain of water, I need it. I must have it, but I think I can find it somewhere else, right? That's the imagery. So what we do is we wander off, and we continue on, sand and sun, sand and sun, right? Trying to find water. We can't find any. So in desperation, we, we hew out, hewn out these bowls, and we hope and pray that it'll rain, right? I'll get some water in my bowl, and we put it out, and, and, and all of a sudden it rains at one time in the desert. And we, and we go out there with our kind of like sun-scorched lips, and we pick up this bowl, and we lift it up to our lips to drink it, and you know what happens? The water just seeps out through the bottom, goes into the sand. That's the picture, God says. That's what it's like. That's what idolatry is. It is forsaking God himself, who you were made for, and trying to find it, crafting it on your own in whatever it is to try to find it. But when you go to satisfy your soul, it falls through. Right? Uh, Paul put it this way, another way of kind of the Bible describes it. Romans 1, verse 22 through 25, Paul says, claiming to be wise... They, speaking of us as human beings, became fools. And here's this word. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That, that exchange, that trade that we make, right, that is, that is what it is. This, that's what idolatry is. And guys, that is why we sin. You say, what is that? When we disobey God's commands. That's why we do it. You know, sometimes you may wonder, why do I do what I do? Like, what, why, why do I disobey? Why do I, do, why do I run away from Jesus? Because there is something, someone, that we're trying to find that in. All right? they're usually, and they're usually good things. Idolatry is usually good things that we make into ultimate things. Right? They're usually good things, gifts that God gives to us that we try to build a life on. Right? We try to find significance, and we try to find our satisfaction, and it's a good thing, usually, that we turn into an ultimate thing, something we must sacrifice everything to get. An idol can be a relationship. It can be family. It can be money, power, achievement, health, 
fitness, beauty, education, technology. It can be anything, right? As we approach this passage of 1 Corinthians 10, this isn't for some ancient archaic. Maybe you first read it, you think like, oh, this is for like the uncivilized people, right? This is for the people out way out and, and you know, and, and lack of civilization. They have statues of wood that they're bowing down to type of thing. This passage, guys, is for every single one of us. We're all guilty of what the Bible calls idolatry. We're all guilty of turning good things into ultimate things, right? We forsake Jesus, the fountain of living water, and we try to find life somewhere else, and it's an everyday battle. And so Paul wants to help us by warning us about idolatry, equipping us to identify, right, our idols, and then showing us how to run, who to run to, really, we'll find out, instead of running to the idols, okay? So all of this is so that we'll get on mission. That's the context. So that we'll stay on mission, because he said in chapter 9, we ended last week, it's going to take discipline, right? It's going to take hard work, Um, and idolatry will keep us from mission of Jesus, right? We'll, we'll, We'll make our own mission. We'll craft our own little mission for life, right? We'll, we'll so idolize and hold up things that are good and make them ultimate things that we will not get on mission to make disciples and see people come to know Christ because we're too busy worshiping our own little idols. You see why, why this is here in this context, right? So we will, we will pour again our, uh, ourselves into good things and make them ultimate things and miss the ultimate mission that Jesus has for us. So here, we're going we're gonna to approach this text by asking three questions, right, and answer them. Three questions are this. Why is idolatry bad? Like, why is this so bad? And he spends a lot of time, and we're going to spend a lot of our time, most of our time on that subject, on that one question. Why is it bad? Number two, how do we identify it? How do we identify our idols? Number three, where do we flee from idolatry? Number one, why is idolatry so bad? Now, Paul lays out what I'll say here is three reasons why it's bad. It's, it's destructive, it's distracting, and he's going to even say it's demonic, okay? Let's look at each of those. Idolatry is destructive. Now, he begins the passage by Tell us a story that you may or may not be familiar with. It's a story about Israel in the Old Testament, book of Exodus, uh, those places, and what the story of what happened to the people. And he talks about Exodus and Numbers and kind of gets those first kind of couple books of the, new, of the Bible uh, he tells us about. And he had just finished here in chapter 9, again, talking about the possibility of being disqualified. And the word means to be found to be a counterfeit. A counterfeit Christian is someone who claims Jesus, maybe talks about Jesus, but doesn't follow Jesus, right? They don't get on mission. They don't seek the loss. They rather cozy up to their idols. And eventually, what we're going to, what he's going to describe here, it's kind of scary. Eventually, what we find is we get destroyed by them. Because nothing in this world was designed to carry the weight of your human soul. You know that, right? There is nothing and no one, no matter how good it or they may be, that was ever meant to carry the weight of your eternal soul. It was only meant to be carried by God himself. And idolatry is us trying to put that weight on someone or something else, right? So, so we find here, we become like uh, Gollum. I remember Gollum here, Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite little movie series or book series there. We become like Gollum. Remember the end of that whole series, how it ended? He finally gets what he always wanted, the precious, right, the ring. If you haven't seen this, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you have, <laughs> it may sound bizarre if you haven't. Um, he finally gets the precious. He finally gets his ring. He's on Mount Doom, and he finally grabs it. At the very end, he gets it, and he, he falls off the edge of a cliff. And as he's falling down into the lava, he, he grabs his ring. He's smiling, so happy, and he falls into the lava, and he perishes. Right? That's kind of what, what, this is what Paul is saying. We get what we ultimately think we need, and we end up perishing in the process. Um, 
He says Israel had a, he describes here, Israel had a lot of grace. They had a lot of, experienced a lot of grace by God. They were rescued out of slavery in Egypt by God himself. Uh, they, were, uh, they were under the watchful eye of God, he says here, and a pillar of cloud uh, by day and fire by night. That cloud never left them. Uh, God watched over them, kind of like a shepherd will watch over his sheep. Listen to the language in Exodus 13. He says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of cloud by night did not depart from the people. All right, so God is watching over them. He delivered them. He's watching over them. He's carrying them, leads them up to a, a, a body of water called the Red Sea. Again, you may be familiar with this story. And God ultimately, miraculously, right, split the Red Sea apart, and they got to walk across dry ground. And then they got to the other side. The water fell down and destroyed all the Egyptians and all their enemies. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing story, right? And I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. And then he goes on to say they ate the same spiritual food, they drank the same spiritual drink. Uh, verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So, so they get out on the other side of the Red Sea. They end up in like a desert. When it says wilderness. You're probably thinking like trees and stuff. It's really more like a desert. If you've ever been out in California, like Joshua Tree type, type scenario, that kind of park. Okay? So they're out there, and God provides for them. While they're out there in the middle of the desert, he provides them uh, from the sky, he drops down, it's called, the word in the Bible, they call it manna, which is funny, because the Hebrew word for manna is, what the, that's it. Because they didn't know what to call it, so that's what they called it, like, what the, what, what is this? And that's what it is, that's what manna means, if you didn't know that, that's a trivia word for you. Um, and so they're, it's like frosted flakes, it's kind of what it looked like. I mean, literally, if you like frosted flakes, it was like God provided frosted flakes from the sky every day for them. And then says God gave them water from a rock, which Paul says was Jesus himself doing this, right? I mean, he, he was there actively giving them water where they shouldn't have been able to get water. He came from a rock. I mean, it sounds amazing, right? I mean, let me contextualize that for a second for us. Hold on. Think about this, this amazing experience. Can you imagine a cloud that leads you to work every day? The cars, they just part on the 465. For you to drive straight through, you never have to touch your brake all the way to work on your commute. And when you get to work, you have a bottomless bowl of Frosted Flakes right there on your desk. You get to put your Yeti up to your nameplate on your desk, and it just out comes alkaline water whenever you want it, right? Just, you don't even have to get up for this, right? Can life get better? You know, probably not, right? This is pretty good. This is a good life. I mean, this is God providing miraculously, like, this is great. I don't have to do very much. I mean, everything's pretty easy in that way. And the Israelites, they experienced the same kind of thing. But you know what they said? Ah, I think I can find it better than this. It, there's a better life than this, right? There, there's a better situation than this. I can do this myself. So look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most of them, by the way, is an understatement. Okay, if you read, you go back and read the story, they all died except for Caleb and Joshua and the, and the kids, right? All the adults perished in the wilderness, in the, in the desert. To be overthrown, the word literally means, my, my ESV has a little footnote there, you can look at the bottom, it means to be laid low, to be spread out across the desert. Their bodies were just, just drop, right? Just, just randomly would just drop, and they over time began to all die. Now you hear that, and you may think, wow, God, that's, a, that's a little strong of a response, don't you think? That's a little harsh, but realize Again, they experienced the grace and the power and the presence of God in very unique ways. 
They had the opportunity to respond to God, to follow him and believe in him. But most of them decided they knew better and went their own way. They thought Jesus didn't lead them well enough, right? Didn't give them good enough life, didn't give them good enough things. His timing was off, right? His decisions were really poor. And so they abandoned the fountain of living water and they made bowls that could hold no water and God laid them low. He laid them low. Jeremy Taylor, just one sentence. This is a pretty profound little statement. God threatens terrible things if we would not be happy in him. Think about that for a second. That's, you go, is that, is that biblical? Like, is that in the Bible? Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48. Listen to this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and a gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Yeah, it's in the Bible. You're like, well, that's Old Testament, right? I mean, God was kind of cranky then or something. I mean, mean, people have these kind of thoughts. Like, oh, it's totally different back then. All right, let's look at our own book, how it ends. Paul ends the letter that we're reading right now, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Like, what does accursed mean? Let him go to hell. You're like, that's in the Bible. That's what it means. I mean, it's strong language, right? I mean, I just want you to get, kind of get the understanding of this and wrap your brain around how severe and significant it is what God is saying. You say, God takes idolatry that seriously? Yes, he does. He will have no competitors. <laughs> and that's not because he's like, he's just really like possessive in that way. It's because he loves you, right? It's because he loves you. That, that's why it says, everyone does not love the Lord, right? That's what he's talking about. You say, uh, but I thought Israel was God's people. Why would God treat his people like that? Well, also understand this. Not all of Israel was Israel. You're like, what does that mean? Just uh, Here's how Paul put it, Romans 9, 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Meaning all the people that were part of that nation that got let out, a lot of them didn't believe God. A lot of them didn't trust God. A lot of them weren't the people of God in that sense of the word. They didn't have a personal relationship with him. A lot of them wanted God as a tool, God as a trophy, God as a means to their own agendas, the same way people in America today, Midwest, would like to treat God. This is a tool, right? Uh, if I can use him to get what I want, then great. If I have to come to church and do it, fine, I guess I'll do it, right? If I, if I have to do this, okay, I'll do that, but as long as I get what I need. Receive benefits, right, of rescue and guidance. But it was... All of that, these guys were so, they were happy at first, at least, to, to get those things, but they did it so that they would run their own lives, so they could be, as William Ernest Henley said, the masters of their own fate and captain of their own souls. If I got to use God to get it, great, I'll do it, but I don't want to, I don't want, I want to run my own life. This is why most of them didn't make it to the promised lands, why God laid them low. They chose something, someone else over Jesus, and their idols were the reason for their own destruction. You need to know that idolatry is very real. And it will destroy you. You can be in church. You can experience the kindness of God. You can have it all together and appear to have it all together and st- still spend an eternity apart from God. Coming to church does not shelter you from the wrath of God. You know that, right? I hope you do. It doesn't shelter you from the wrath of God. It doesn't bring you into relationship with God. You've got to come to Christ. You've got to, you've got to lay down the life, right? That's what he's talking about. Jesus would say in the Gospels, you're either for me or what? Against me. There's no, you know, middle ground here. 
Idolatry is not a game. It'll rob us. Matter of fact, it'll not only rob us of our relationship with God, it'll rob us even of ourselves. In Luke 16, if you're familiar with this story, there's a story there called the rich man and, you know the guy's name? Lazarus. There we go. Someone knew that, right? Rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is in heaven, rich man in hell. Do you notice who's got a name? Lazarus. What's the guy's name that's in hell? We don't know. Why? His name is rich man. What's that mean? That, that's his idol. He was a rich man or nothing. He, he lost even his own identity, his own self, got absorbed into that very idol. It will destroy you. It'll destroy you from your, in terms of relationship to God and have no relationship to God if you treasure your idols above him. It'll also destroy you because you'll get absorbed into how many, of you, how many people have you seen in your life? Maybe you've experienced this yourself. They get so wrapped up into whatever it is that it ends up taking them over ends up destroying them. That, that's why this language is so intense and so harsh and so, so strong, because God's trying to, you know, rattle us up a little bit here and get our attention. Let's go to the second one. Idolatry is also distracting. In the immediate context, this is kind of Paul's major point. He spoke of being shown to be a counterfeit, and if it was someone who didn't get in the game, we talked about last week, right? Someone who didn't get on mission, didn't follow Jesus to know him and make him known, and the same is true of Israel. They, many of them, most of them, were content to, as it were, be on the practice squad. Right? They were content to be in the classroom. They were content to learn some information, check off some boxes type stuff. Israel had a mission. Do you know that? Just like we have a mission, they had a mission. They were God's people to be, to be sent out to reach people, just like we as a church, as God's people, have been sent out to reach people. Listen, listen to their, their own mission, Exodus 19. God says, you, speaking of Israel, will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. That's, en that's engagement of people, representing people to God, and a holy nation, God to people. You're going to go out. Do you know they had a mission? <laughs> that was their mission. Or look at this way, Isaiah 42. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, uh, from the prison who's those who sit in darkness. Israel was to be God's witnessing community, right? That was the race that the nation of Israel was supposed to run. It's the same one that we've been given to run. We as the followers of Jesus, as the church, are to be a light, right? We talked about this last week, light of the world, salt of the earth. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. Paul would say in chapter 9, we're to be all things to all men that we may by all means reach some. Right? The same mission. Uh, as a matter of fact, Peter would pick up this language from Exodus and apply it to us. He'd said this, 1 Peter 2.9. You, speaking of Christians, are a chosen race, a church, the royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's the same language. A people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So Paul, in this chapter 10, is recounting Israel's idolatry to warn us that no matter what we confess with our mouths, no matter how much church attendance we do, no matter how many Bible studies we attend, if we don't actually follow Jesus, if we don't actually then get on mission to, to make him known, if we don't seek to become, as Paul would say in chapter 9, all things to all men, to reach some, then we're no different than the nation of Israel who also didn't do that. Idolatry kept them on the practice squad. They treasured their comfort they treasured their schedules, they treasured their plans, their agendas, their personal missions and pursuits more than Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Okay, this is not something old and ancient, okay? This is very applicable today. The question is, do you have idols that are keeping you from Jesus? 
Do you have idols that, you are, that, that are blinding you to the value of Jesus? Do you have idols that are pulling you off mission, sidelining you? Idolatry distracts the mission of Jesus because it blinds us to the value of Jesus, the value of eternity, and the value of people. Thirdly here, idolatry is demonic. Now, this gets really intense because you read this toward the end of the chapter, down to verse 21. He talks about this whole, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons thing. And talks about partaking in the table. And what's, you say, what's going on? In the context, Paul is talking about how the people of Israel, they shared in. The word is uh, to fellowship with. It's a Greek word called koinonia, to, to share with, to participate with. Uh, they participate with God when they ate of the sacrifices they offered to God. There was a, what is he saying? There was an intimacy. There was a fellowship that happened with God, with them. It was bonding. And he says the same thing happens with our idols. We, we get entangled with them. We get bonded with them in a way. And Paul says that, that bonding of something, something else other than Jesus is demonic, he says. <laughs> when we treasure anything or anyone more than Jesus, even if it's a good thing, even if it's cute and pretty and sleek and smart or whatever it is, right? Smart. I suppose I don't know why I said that. Um, when you make it an ultimate thing, right, you're participating, Paul says, with demons. Idolatry in any form is demonic in nature because why? Because the mission of demons is to keep us off mission by blinding us to the value and worth of Jesus. See, so where do you get that from? Well, Paul says it in the second letter, 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Blind them from the value of Christ. That's their mission. And it's not just blind. And what is he blind with? Demons blind you with idols, right? Something's so much more prettier, right? So much more valuable than Jesus, right? that's, That's their mission. That's why Paul says it's demonic. And don't think that, again, because idolatry is demonic, that your idols must have, like, horns and their heads must spin or something, right? That's usually when we think of that. We kind of go to this kind of weird place uh, that we think about idols. But Paul would, would tell the Corinthians in the second letter that Satan pr- parades around like an uh, angel of light, right? Angel of light. It looks really good. That's why idols, again, that's why they're always, almost always good things that we make into ultimate things. Listen to C.S. Lewis's uh, book uh, called Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read this before. It's a, it's a conversation, it's really, it's really interesting how he writes it. It's a conversation between like a mentor demon and his protege. And he's trying to talk about how to tempt human beings, all right? So that's the context of the conversation. So here's a conversation between, you know, a, a, a demon, mentor demon with a protege, right? Here's, here's what he says. Never forget that we, when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense... On the enemy's ground. Who's the enemy? Well, God is the enemy, right? Jesus is the enemy in this context. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which is least natural or less pleasurable. And then he ends with this. So good. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. That's why idolatry, sin, will make you stupid. Seriously. You make dumb decisions. You do. 
right? You, you so treasure these things that are good at first, and you make them ultimate, and you start rationalizing, making crazy decisions in order to keep them, right? In order to keep them. We start having an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's what Satan's demons are after with you. This is what he's trying to, this is why they're trying to get you to buy. That's why Isaiah 44, 20 gives this image as he feeds, speaking of the unbeliever, he feeds on ashes. He's, he's trying to eat. The things he treasures are like ashes. A deluded heart, a blinded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Like he can't even see it anymore. It used to be really good, and now it's become ultimate, and now he can't let it go, right? His grip's on it, and he doesn't even have the ability to look at it and go, what am I doing? You see? Idolatry is destructive. It is distracting. It is demonic. And those things you think you must have or that position you think you must have or that person you think you must have will cause you to make really dumb decisions, to rationalize, to think it's no big deal. Next thing you know, you're laying on your back and you're looking up, you're going, how did I ever get to this spot? How did I ever get here? This is why this is important, right? That's why this passage is important. The grass is never greener on the other side. Learn from Israel. That's what Paul's trying to tell us, right? Learn, learn. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. All right, number two. The second question, how do we identify our idols now? That's a good question, right? How, so how do I identify what they are? I mean, we're talking about how bad it is. All right, I, I get it, but how do I know what mine are? Well, Paul actually gives us a couple of stories here to help, uh, help us answer it. Let me give you a few of them, and we'll do it by, by questions again. First thing you want to ask yourself is, well, what would you sin for? <laughs> what would you sin for? You know you've made a good thing into an ultimate thing when you're willing to break the commandments of Jesus to get them or to keep them, right? Or if you're led into sin by them. Yeah, that's why you start asking that question. In other words, you, you know you have an idol when you're willing to, as the commandments would say, lie, steal, cheat, murder, to get it or keep it. You know you have an idol if, if whatever it is leads you into things that are forbidden by Jesus, which Paul has brought up already, there's two of them he's brought up a lot, sexual morality and greed. If anything leads you into those things, that thing has become an idol. So this is getting practical. If that boyfriend or girlfriend leads you into sexual morality, then it, they become an idol to you. If that paycheck leads you to buy really dumb stuff, to live beyond your means and get into major debt with the money, guess what? The money has become an idol. If that phone or that tablet or that screen leads you to neglect people and responsibilities, guess what? It's become an idol. It's led you to disobey God. It's led you away from Jesus. It's become an idol now, you see? All those things are good things. You see how when they become ultimate things, they become an idol, right? So look what he says, verse 7. Don't be idolaters. Some of them were the people sat down to eat, drink, rose up to play. You're like, whoa, what's going on there? Were they playing, were they doing hopscotch? Mm -hmm. Nope, they weren't doing hopscotch. Just let you know. Exodus 32, we find a story there of Aaron, uh, who's kind of leading the people. Moses went up the mountain to get the commandments. Maybe you're familiar with the story. And, uh, and Aaron he, he plays the fool. It's kind of like, hey, because um, it comes down, there's like this golden calf that's been made. And his excuse was, I don't know how it happened. Uh, they gave me their jewelry. I threw it in the fire, and then poof, out came this golden calf. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how that happened. I mean, it's really, really quite hilarious story. He then built an altar to this idol, right? declared a feast to God with it, and then offered the same sacrifice and offerings that were supposed to go to God, he offered to this thing. And the point is that the people in Aaron wanted something more than God. They wanted to go, go their own way. They, wanted, they had Aaron build this golden calf, which represented to them their own personal kind of freedom, the chuck it off whatever God is telling us to do and do my own thing, my freedom to choose my own way. 
They wanted to craft their own life. And so while Moses is literally up there getting the Ten Commandments, they're at the bottom of the mountain breaking the Ten Commandments, right? Because the rise up in play was not hopscotch. Okay, that was uh, hopscotch. Is that the right word? Is that how you say that word? I don't even remember. Is that correct, Jenna? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, to rise up in play was not that. Okay, it, it had sexual overtones to the word, right? Their desire to call their own shots led them into sexual morality. That's what that meant. And he goes on to describe this. Next verse, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual morality. Some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's intense, right? That's another story. It takes place in Numbers 25. They jumped into sexual morality because of their idolatry. You say, what did they, what did they idolize? Women. The men, the Israelite men, wanted these Moabite women. God said, no, can't have them. Um, you know, they need to stick with their Israelite women, get married, have babies, do that, right? That's, 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 that's good for you, go that way. They said, no, we want to go this way. So instead, the men, again, thinking the women, uh, the Moabite women were hot, failing to also realize that hell was also hot, uh, went against God. <laughs> they went against God. They joined these Moabite women. They're like, well, this is, they're, they're nice, right? It goes that way. Next thing you know, they end up worshiping with them. Next thing you know, they start sacrificing with them. They end up joining, participating in ritual prostitution, which I'm sure is not where they started thinking they were going to go, but that's where they went, right? Because why? They idolized these women. They're like, we must have them, right? Idolatry will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. Always, always. Right? You need to identify the sin underneath the sin. Don't just identify, I'm, I'm doing wrong. How do I solve this? How do I stop this? You've got to identify why you're doing it. What's driving you to disobey God? Uh, second question we need to ask ourselves, what do you complain over? Anybody here complain? Liars. <laughs> All liars. Thank you for two of you that were very honest with that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, I had my hand up. I was with you on that one, but okay. Uh, what do you complain over? Uh, it says here in verse 9 that they, they grumbled. They put God to the test, right? And serpents came out and bit them. Wouldn't that be pretty cool if God still did that? We'd stop complaining probably pretty quick, wouldn't they? Every time you complain, like a snake pops out of the cupboard and just you know, bites you. Um, I'm not advocating for that because I get bit too. All right. The Israelites were in the desert because they had idols in their hearts, right? They, they were wandering around because they, they had that. They wanted to live their own lives. They didn't want Jesus. And so what did they do? They started to complain. Nothing was good enough, right? In Numbers 21, they actually called the, the frosted flakes, the manna that God gave them, he called it miserable food, is what they called it. This is nasty. This is gross. We're tired of it. They wanted, I don't know, they wanted fruity pebbles instead of frosted flakes, right? They wanted soda instead of water. They wanted better directions, better decisions, better benefits from God. And what they were saying, in essence, is, God, you're just not good. You're gross, right? You're just not very good at all. And then that there were better things out there in the world. And as Johnny Cash once said, God cut them down. Right? That's exactly what happened. You want to discover your idols? Find out what you complain about the most. What is frustrating in your life that you complain about? It, it may be indicative of where your idolatry lies. Right? If you're always complaining about your family, maybe your family's become your idol. If you're always complaining about your spouse, maybe your spouse has become your idol. If you're always complaining about your kids or your job or your boss or whatever, maybe those things have become your idols because you want your boss to affirm you. You want your kids to obey you, right? This is, this is what's most important to you in life. You want your spouse to adore you, and it's just not happening, and it's frustrating, and so you complain about it, and in the complaining, you kind of show your hand, it just may be that those very things that you, they're not giving you what you want them to give you, see? They've become ultimate, and you're frustrated because they're not giving it to you, which is only meant to be found in God himself. Another question, 
What are you confident in? Maybe we could say, what are you overly confident in? Verse 12 says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Again, those guys back in Numbers 25 went after Moabite women, end up in prostitution, thought they could probably stand, and yet they fell, right? Some of the Corinthians thought they were above temptation as well to idolatry, and they had nothing to fear. And when you become overly confident in yourself, in something, whatever that something is, that may be an idol to you. Think about it. Another way to ask this question is, where do you tend to find your righteousness? This is kind of the other side of the coin. What do you lean on? If you're not leaning on Jesus, what do you lean on? What do you, what do you count on to give you credibility? Right? You could have a discipline idol. Discipline idol, yeah. I work hard, man. You don't understand. I, I have a strong sense of self-discipline, unlike these other slackers around me. Right? It's a discipline righteousness, a discipline idol. A family idol. I do things right as a husband, as a wife, as a parent. I'm, I'm better than those others who have just unruly households. Theological idols. Yeah, you can make the Anything can be an idol, right? Theological idols. I have good theology. I know the Bible inside and out, unlike those other people who don't seem to know anything or don't even care. Intellectual idols. I'm a better read. I'm more articulate, more culturally savvy than others who don't seem to have a clue. Accessibility idols. In a world that's busy, I'm always accessible. I'm always available to others when they need me, while these other people are just too busy worrying about their own lives. But me, I'm always available, right? Your availability idol, right? Financial idol. You know, I manage my money wisely. I stay out of debt, and that proves that of my wisdom and my trustworthiness, and it proves that people should turn to me. You see, you see how they, all these things are good. All of these things I just mentioned are good, but they can easily become ultimate. And when they do, you can tell by the arrogance and pride that you have in your own self. Another question, last question. What do, you, what do you make excuses for? What do you make excuses for? Paul says in verse 13, he talks about here that uh, the Corinthians apparently were making excuses for their idolatry. Maybe they said things like, Paul, you just don't know what it's like to live in this city of Corinth. It's really hard. You know, we can't help ourselves. We're victims. You, we don't have a choice. Paul, we, we were born this way. To which Paul says, basically, there, there's no uncommon temptation here. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that we can ultimately make an excuse for and say, well, I just can't help it. Paul says that God always provides his people with a window of opportunity, an exit path, a way to get out. The point is there's no temptation, no sin that is inescapable by God's grace. And if you find an area of your life that you make excuses for, it's quite possible that that area you make excuses in, that you don't follow Jesus because of this, circle it, it's probably an idol in your life, right? It could be greed, it could be your greed, your sexuality, your anger, anything that you say, you know what, that's just the way I am. Anything you say that's just the way I am, it's probably become an ultimate thing to you. Okay, so lastly, number three, last thing this morning, be quick about this one. Where do we flee from idolatry? Because that's kind of the command, that's the ultimate driving force of this passage is flee, run, get away from it, he says uh, in verse 14. Where do we flee? And we're going to say here, it's not just, just take off running aimlessly. We talked about last week about uh, you know, Forrest Gump who just ran for no apparent reason. He just kept running, right? It's not that. Don't just run for no reason. Run to something is what he's going to say. And there's two somethings. One, we run to the church. I mean, we run to each other. This is why growing through relationships is really important. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to run to Jesus. Right? We're going to delight in the gospel. These are things we talk about a lot. So look at this. Number one, run to the church. Verse 16 says this whole participation language. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Um, Paul brings up communion here. 
which honestly, at first I read this passage, I'm going like, why does he bring up communion? I thought that's in chapter 11. Like, why did he bring it up here? I didn't understand. And, and he tells us that instead of com- communing and connecting with our idols, we should seek connection with each other. Remember, this is all with the mission in mind. Why? Because they will know us by our love for one another. That's why relationships are important within the church and why we should pursue connection with the church. One of the ways of doing this is by gathering together like we do right now each Sunday and then taking communion together, which we do every Sunday. Communion expresses the unity of the church. It's a time for us to reflect, to connect spiritually with each other, which is why we can't treat this Sunday gathering, guys, as just like an optional thing I kind of maybe get to, maybe don't. We need each other to fight idolatry. We need each other so we fight idolatry so we get on mission together, right? We need that. Without the church, your idols will just grow. They just grow, and they get more powerful, and they get stronger. And then, again, you find yourself on your back looking up going, how did I get here? Right? The text says, notice the text says some very important things. It says, we bless, we break. Not I bless or I break. We do this together. And that's why it says in verse 17, because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Communion is a time we get together, and when we take communion together, there's a couple things going on there, and we'll talk about this more in a couple weeks in chapter 11, but we're there to remind each other in this passage particularly that we take communion together. We're reminding each other that we're for each other and not against each other. That's one of the parts about communion. We take it to remember together, so I don't take it individually, we take it all together at a very specific time to remind each other that we're for each other and not against each other. No friendly fire, okay? That's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about. We're not the enemy here. Right? We're, we're supposed to be on mission together and go together. We're like a band of brothers in the trenches together. So let's not shoot each other. We take communion remember, oh yeah, that's right, we're on the same team here. <laughs> we're all pulling the oars the same direction here. If we're going to fight idolatry so that we're on mission, then we need to do it together. Becoming like Jesus, the, we use the word sanctification, isn't a solo project. It's a communal project. We take communion together. In a moment, we're here to consider one another. We're here to reconcile with each other if needed. We are here to pray for each other, right? And the mission field that's in front of us this week. It's why we have people up front to pray for you. You wonder why people stand up here? They're not there just to like guard, I don't know, they're not guarding the tables. Like you can't have two pieces of bread, only one. Like they're not doing that. They're there to pray with you for us. We're doing this together. It's not just a mechanism we're kind of going through. We're reminding each other, okay, we're reconciling with each other. We're praying for each other. We're praying for the mission that we're on, right? We're doing that together. That's what we're doing in communion. So Paul says, flee idolatry, run to one another, and lastly, run to Jesus. Again, back in 16, he talks about participating in the blood of Christ. Notice that we're not just sharing or communing or connecting with each other when we gather for worship and communion. We're sharing, connecting, communing with Jesus. When we take little pieces of bread and juice, we're not doing so to score points with Jesus. You're not gaining any points with Jesus on that, all right? Uh, we're doing it to reconnect with him spiritually, to get our hearts in the right place so that we can leave this place and take on our idols, right, and get on mission that he's, he's called us to. We're remembering the personal work of Jesus, which is represented in many ways, uh, representative of the body and blood. The Holy Spirit uses the elements that we take to awaken us and to remind us of grace and the value of Jesus over our idols. That's why we end every sermon on Jesus. That's why we always get to Jesus every Sunday, because that's the fuel that's going to help us fight against the idols and motivate us to get on mission. Remember we talked about at the beginning that, that we're religious at the core, right? We're worshipers. And this means that you can't just stop idolatry. I don't know if you've ever tried that before. This is no longer going to be important to me. 
good luck, right? I mean, it just doesn't work that way. You, you, have to, you can't just break the idols. You have to replace them. You have to worship, treasure someone else, and that someone else is Jesus. And this, this Puritan, Thomas Chalmers, said this. This is a brilliant statement. Here's what he said. The heart's desire for an ultimate object, that's our word idolatry, may be conquered, but his desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. When we can replace my love for this, that it's, gotten, it's, it's inordinate, right? It's, got, it's gotten too strong. It's too much. The only way I can replace that is by taking that passion and not just turning the valve off because I can't, right? Again, there's no power off button for pleasure here and desire, but I can't point it towards Jesus, right? That's what he's saying. Idolatry isn't solved by loving a thing or person less. It's resolved by loving Jesus more. Let me say that again. Idolatry is not solved by loving that person, that thing, whatever it is, more. I'm sorry, loving it less, it's by loving Jesus more. That's always the solution. Your idols will always let you down, no matter how good they may appear to be. You can blame yourself, you can blame others, you can blame the world, you can blame everybody. But at the end of the day, none of those things that you so treasure were ever meant to satisfy your soul. The only, they only serve to kind of, as it were, whet the appetite and point you to the reality and the ultimate reality behind all of these things which is ultimately Jesus, right? The created world was meant to point us to him. I'm going to end with a quote here, and then we'll go to communion. C.S. Lewis, which is probably not shocking to you that I'm quoting, um, said this. He said, most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world, he says, that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, are longings which no marriage, no travel, can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I mean, the wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may, be, may have been excellent, but something has evaded us. He says the foolish person puts the blame on the things themselves. It's their fault. He goes on all of his life thinking that if only he tries another woman, or went for a more expensive holiday, then this time he really would catch the mysterious something that we're all after. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but to only arouse and to suggest the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus. He's behind all those things. He's the giver of all good gifts that we turn and make into ultimate things, right? And so our solution is to turn to him. As we go to communion, we're going to do the things we just talked about. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to pray for each other, right? We're going, to, we're going to consider one another. We're going to reconcile if we need to get up and walk across the room and go like, you know, I have a beef with somebody. I need to fix that. Go do it. I'm being totally serious. Like, get up and go do it. Not right now. Just give me a second. But if you want to go now, I applaud you. That's good. Um, but we're going to do that. If we take communion, we're going to remember. We're going to search our hearts. And we're going to remember Jesus who, who again, who went to a cross, who died and rose again, who lived the life we couldn't live and died a death we should have died to save us because he's so much more valuable and he's so much more worthy than whatever the stuff is or the people that we so treasure and desire. You can't find it in them. You can't find it in it. You can find it in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Uh, this, this passage can seem a little bit, well, a lot of Corinthians sometimes can seem a little bit archaic um, and seem something that's not applicable to our lives. But as we look at it closely, 
it is very applicable to our lives, super applicable. God, we all have idols. We all have things that we treasure more than you. I pray this morning that we would, as Romans 12 talks about, that we would lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice. We'd offer ourselves up to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our act of worship. May we worship you this morning by giving you all the glory and honor that you deserve, by giving you all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.